Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to a special edition of Babbage, a festive roundup of some of the science and technology highlights from this year's shows. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, how IVF could save the northern white rhino from extinction. What this research has shown is that there's been commendable progress in developing assisted reproductive technologies for rhinos. Is there water on Mars? What we seem to have is underneath the southern polar ice cap on Mars, there is liquid water, and not just a little bit, there is a lake about 20 kilometres across, buried about one and a half kilometres down beneath the ice. And how the amphibious life of the Bajau people has pushed forward the understanding of human evolution. And it seems that the genetic variant that we see in the Bajo causes thyroid hormone levels to be higher, which in turn causes an increase in spleen size. But first, the beginning of 2018 saw the death of the last male northern white rhinoceros, leaving only two females, representing the world's most endangered mammal. I spoke with Terry Roth, the vice president of conservation and research of endangered wildlife at the Cincinnati Zoo. I asked how we came to this tragic situation. Yeah, it's really a tragedy, isn't it, that we just have two left. But what's happened, it's kind of a two-pronged approach to kind of causing this um, species to decline in the way that it has. First, poaching and civil unrest in northern Africa really decimated the population in the early 2000s. So we had a population of about 30 rhinos that the International Rhino Foundation was protecting. They were starting to increase in numbers, and we had a great deal of hope that we were saving the northern white rhino. But civil unrest just took care of all of that. And the rangers that were out protecting them, we had to pull them out of that region just to save their lives, and the rhinos were destroyed. The other effort that was ongoing was an effort to produce the species in a managed breeding program, and that was occurring both in the United States and the Czech Republic. But for whatever reason, there were a lot of complications, and the northern right rhino just simply failed to thrive and to breed naturally. And so we ended up with just a few individuals left, and they were sent to Kenya, and that is where the last remaining two females exist today. But there is hope. So tell me about the research. Yeah, so this, what this research has shown is that there's been commendable progress in developing assisted reproductive technologies for rhinos. And by producing these hybrid embryos, we may have the opportunity to save some of the genes of the northern white rhino so that we don't lose them forever. How would that work? Well, what the scientists have demonstrated is that they can use sperm from the northern white rhino to fertilize oocytes from the southern white rhino. And so these subspecies hybrid embryos will contain genetics from both subspecies. If we can produce viable offspring, then those offspring would have to be bred to each other until we dilute out the southern white rhino gene 
and kind of concentrate the northern white rhino genes and eventually have an animal that is very similar to the northern white rhino. Is this the sort of thing that might have happened in nature anyway, or is the innovation here the fact that we can manage the population gene pool in this way? Well, in, in the wild, they actually would have been separate because the habitats are a great distance away from each other. So they wouldn't have hybridized due to the distance. But if you had brought a northern and southern white rhino together in the same habitat, they clearly could hybridize naturally. Um, they are just subspecies and not species, and therefore hybridization can take place pretty readily. Terry, is this enough to save the species? Um, in my mind, it is not enough, and I think it's a tragedy that we have allowed ourselves to get to the point where assisted reproductive technologies, this high-tech approach is absolutely essential to even saving the genes of this subspecies. There is a lot more that needs to be done, and I think the concerted effort of boots on the ground, protecting rhinos from poachers, politicians passing laws, judges upholding those laws, all those things are so important to saving species from going extinct. But when you get into a situation where it's, it's basically we're asking the, the triage unit to try and help us so that we don't lose the last of the northern white rhinos, and that's when the reproductive technologies can really make a difference. Next... In July, a paper was published that could put an end to the speculation of the existence of water on Mars. Spoiler alert, it's there. I spoke with Tim Cross, the Economist science correspondent, about it. I guess the first thing we should say is, actually, there's no shortage of water on Mars. It's just that it seems to be almost all ice. So there's millions of cubic kilometers of ice on Mars, enough to sort of drown the whole planet in a 100-foot deep ocean if it were all to melt. But what people are really have been wondering about for a long, long time, ever since, you know, the 1890s and this whole idea that you could see canals on the Martian surface, was whether any of it was liquid. And so up until today, really, when, when, when this was published, the best thing we had was some observations from orbit, which seemed to show that, you know, very occasionally you'd get these tiny little bubblings of briny water in the bottoms of craters, maybe sort of in the Martian summer when it was slightly less cold and the water could exist on the surface briefly. Even that's never quite been conclusively proven. Now, though, what we seem to have is underneath the southern polar ice cap on Mars, there is liquid water, and not just a little bit. There is a lake about 20 kilometers across, buried about one and a half kilometers down beneath the ice. Is this the sort of finding that is widely accepted, or might there be a challenge to it? Well, it's early days. The paper's only just come out. But um, everyone I spoke to in advance of the publication seemed to think it was, you know, a pretty good piece of science. And I mean, the, the technology they've used to find it is not new. It's a similar sort of technology to what we use on Earth to look under the ground. It basically just involves radar. You send low-frequency radar waves into the ground. You wait to see uh, the reflections, and different substances reflect the radar waves, different intensities, and so you can you can tell what's down there. So the team took three and a half years of data, all of it from, from orbit, around the southern Martian pole. They surveyed an area that was about 200 kilometers wide, and they go through in, in the paper various other explanations and sort of rule them out in ways that people who know more about geology than me seem to find pretty convincing. So I think it's a bit hard to say, but I think it, it seems to be a pretty solid finding. And why do we think it's water and not some other liquid? Just because of the, 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 the characteristics of the radar reflections. Like I said, there's no actual shortage of water on Mars. The thing that we seem to be missing is, is liquid water. 
And you can sort of reason by analogy, because what this thing looks an awful lot like is things that we're familiar from from Earth. So, for instance, underneath Antarctica, there are a whole load of, of subterranean lakes, and one of them, Lake Vostok, is one of the biggest lakes in the world. And they're kept liquid by a combination of, uh, you know, the ice insulating them from the surface, the fact that the temperatures go up as you, uh, you know, go deeper underground. And on Mars, you've got the, the pressure of the ice itself will effectively lower the melting point of water as also might the presence of other chemicals that we already know exist on the Martian surface and that basically work like antifreeze. So, so you could get water that's liquid at temperatures quite a long way below zero, which is, seems to be what we have here. Tim, let's be honest. Nobody really cares about water on Mars. They care about other life on Mars. How does this finding point us in the direction of whether life once existed or currently exists on Mars. Ken, you're traducing the geologists of the world. Lots of people care about water. No, that is indeed the big question. So we know, um, you can see from from orbit, Mars was at one point warm and wet, and you can see dried up river valleys and, and deltas and so on. So the hope has always been that maybe four billion years ago when the planet was much warmer and, and much wetter, something did evolve, and then since then it's been clinging on in some refuge as the rest of the world or the rest of Mars, has sort of dried out and frozen. On the other hand, though, it's been about 3.8 billion years, uh, astronomers reckon, since Mars last had water on it. And that's an awful long time for a, a single lake to have survived. One of the scientists I spoke to pointed out as well that Mars's axial tilt has changed since then, which means the polar caps will have moved all over the surface. So the place where the lake is hasn't necessarily always had ice on top of it. So whether this lake is really quite so ancient, I think, uh, has yet to be proven. On the other hand, it may be that there are more of these things. There are plenty of them on Earth. The same basic geological processes apply, and it may well be that Mars is dotted with these things. And who knows, perhaps in one of them, something has managed to cling on. And of course, for now, it's all speculation. But I think what this does do is maybe puts Mars sort of back in contention a bit, because NASA's motto when looking for life has always been, follow the water. And for that reason, I think recently some of the focus has maybe started to shift a bit to the outer solar system, to the moons of planets like Jupiter and Saturn, which, which are icy but seem to have big liquid oceans of water uh, underneath that surface. Now that we know Mars seems to have liquid water as well, I think that maybe bumps it back up the rankings a bit. Our final story takes place in the Malay archipelago, where a group of people called the Bajau spend 60% of their working day underwater. So what could a study of their particular skills and lifestyle tell us about human evolution? The economist Hal Hodson spoke with Melissa Elardo, who has been studying the Bajau and reported the findings in the journal Cell. So traditionally, they're spending their whole day, about an eight-hour working day, diving. And this is done from 30 seconds to several minutes at a time. And their recovery time is so short that they're spending about 60% of their day underwater. So why did you choose the Bajo to study for this sort of, you know, looking for these signs of human evolution over shorter timescales? Well, it really seemed like the perfect opportunity to study natural selection because you have a population that's engaging every day in this activity that's actually extremely dangerous. So a lot of even very experienced freedivers will um, lose consciousness during ascent and drown. So it becomes very dangerous if you're doing it all the time. Right, but you did find that there are some selective traits that have, I presume, helped some divers stay alive over the course of the last thousand years. Some lineages of divers stay alive. Yeah, that's absolutely what we think we found. 
How does that work? What's the physiology of it? So there's something called a human dive response. And the way this works is that when you hold your breath and immerse yourself in water, it triggers this response. And first, your heart rate slows down. Then you have constriction of the blood vessels in your extremities. And you also have contraction of the spleen. And what this is doing is your spleen is holding oxygenated red blood cells. And so as it contracts, it pushes them into your system and gives you this extra oxygen boost. And so that was actually the phenotype we chose to focus on in the Bajo. And what is the, are there sort of very clear genetic traces of these physiological changes or underpinnings rather? Yeah, there are. So we found something in the gene PDE10A, which seems to have been under selection in the Bajo. And what this gene does, or one of the things that it does, is to control thyroid hormone levels. And it seems that the genetic variant that we see in the Bajo causes thyroid hormone levels to be higher, which in turn causes an increase in spleen size. So when they have this larger spleen, they're getting even more of an oxygen boost that allows them to dive for even longer. Does the fact that these mutations have held and become part of the actual lineage mean that the Bajo are quite genetically isolated from outside populations? Yeah, so we're actually surprised to find that in terms of their genetic history, it seems that they haven't been that isolated. So they have mixed quite a bit with other populations, which just shows us that this selective pressure on this diving trait must be so strong in order to act on a population that isn't really that isolated. So you say that the Bajo had larger spleens, but did you check if everybody in the region has larger spleens too? How do we know it's got anything to do with diving? Yeah, so we did a few comparisons to really tease apart what was going on with the spleen size. One thing we did was to compare them to a neighboring group called the Salwan. And these are people who are living about 20 kilometers away, so very close by. Genetically, they're fairly similar, but in all other ways, seemingly they're completely distinct. They have a different language, a different lifestyle. They're not really interacting with the sea. And there we saw this huge difference in spleen size. So the Bajo had spleens that were much larger than the Salwan, about 50% larger. And this told us that there wasn't just something going on in the region that was causing an increase in spleen size. We also looked at Bajo divers compared to Bajo non-divers to make sure that the effect we were seeing wasn't just some kind of physiological reaction to repeated diving. And there we saw that Bajo divers and non-divers have about the same size spleen. And that's all for this special edition of Babbage. If you want to listen to more of these stories, you can find the full episodes of Babbage online. And if you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier in London. This is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.